This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. This episode is called Revisions in Writing, Engineering, and Life. I think you should do it again. Let's revise that title and try it again. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. Our title today... <laughs> Sometimes when you revise, it isn't always better. <laughs> Our show today is called Revisions in Writing, Engineering, and Life. Was that better? I think so, but I think my stomach growled in the middle of oh, it. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Our guests today are bicycle engineer Craig D'Ambrose and author Mike Mullen, who is the writer of the Ashfall series and his latest book, Surface Tension. So you might be wondering what a bicycle engineer has to do with a writer, how they come together. Surface Tension is the story of Jake, a teen cyclist who's about to go pro. After he witnesses an act of domestic terrorism while training on his bike, Jake is found near death with a serious head injury and unable to remember the plane crash or the aftermath that landed him in the hospital. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. High tension and drama ensue. Yes, it was a very good and stressful novel. Yes. <laughs> So as soon as I knew that Mike Mullen had a new book that was about bikes, I was like, oh, I've got to call my friend Craig D'Ambrose, the bike engineer, and get his take on this novel for teens. So I just love that you have a friend who's a bike engineer. <laughs> I think we all need bike engineer friends. <laughs> you, it, they come in handy. <laughs> my bike has been broken for a while now, so that would come in handy. Yeah. Hey, Craig, I've got this bike that I got when I was eight. How come I can't ride it anymore? Can you fix it from, you know, you need a computer tech, a bike engineer. Yeah. A weight loss specialist. <laughs> Friends to have in adulthood. Uh. So Jillian, you and I talk a lot about failure. We do. I don't know if it's because we do it so often and so well that it is one of those topics that keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. Or it's because we see how important it is to growth and learning. Right. I think it's a little bit of both, Kristen. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that failure becomes a step in a process, right? People look at the process that we go through when we create the STEM read field trips. And, you know, if you just peeked in to the workroom or looked at the whiteboard and all the things scribbled out and, you know, just saw us sometimes laying on the floor, tracing ourselves on giant rolls of paper, you would be like, what are you doing? wrong with you people and then you'd get to the field trip and you'd say there there are no parts in the field trip where they're tracing themselves on giant pieces of paper they waste a lot of time and goof up that's a hot mess that's a hot (laughs) mess and and I think that creative processes have that aspect of trial and error there's a messy time for exploration and for questioning and for failure before you come up with ultimately some kind of successful outcome. When you and I look at the different processes, you know, whether we're teaching writing or we're teaching engineering design cycle, we see the overlap. It's not one process owned by one field, but it's something that we all do. When you were designing our version of the engineering design cycle for NIU STEAM, I was a little bit checked out. I was like, um, I'll see <laughs> how this all pans out. <laughs> 
you know, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a, a dog in this fight. And then I was looking at it and I was like, oh, well, asking questions is what I do when I start to come up with a story. Prototyping is writing the story. And then you evaluate. I think that's something that as a writer, I see you evaluate your writing all the time. You read through it. You see what works. You see if it really is addressing the questions you'd asked or if the characters are doing what you want them to do. Just like when we're designing a solution, you evaluate it to see, did it actually solve the problem or did it make things worse? (laughs) Kristen and I think that this iterative process of creative writing and of engineering and art creation, all of these things really have a similar root. And we're going to test out that theory with our bike engineer, Craig D'Ambrose, and our writer, Mike Mullen. Here's our interview with bike engineer, Craig D'Ambrose. Hi everyone, my name is Craig D'Ambrose. Currently live in Portland, Oregon, and I actually start a new job. This coming Monday, I'm gonna be a test engineer. Previously, I was a teacher at the United Bicycle Institute where I taught aspiring bike mechanics to apply their trade. And before that, I uh, had a bunch of different jobs. I was a race mechanic, I was a bike mechanic, I was a product manager for World Bicycle Relief, I was a test technician, uh, among other things. One way or another, I started out in the art world and somehow ended up down the path towards uh, engineering. And here I am. So Craig and I go way back to Southern Illinois University. And when I read Surface Tension by Mike Mullen, I instantly thought of Craig because of all of the bike stuff. But also when we were talking to Mike Mullen, we started talking about this idea of revision in writing and how that can be similar to the engineering design process. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. And I also liked the idea of this revision in life like how your path might not be a straightforward path. You know, we talk to teachers a lot and we talk to students a lot about career pathways. And I think all three of us have had very unconventional pathways to doing what we're doing. It was a career Mm. meander. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let the universe decide, kids. So when you were in Carbondale, when we met, you were studying art. What did you like about art? What were you drawn to? The creative aspect and specifically the idea that you could be solely and totally responsible for uh, an output of something. This sprang from me, this sprang from some ideas that I had, and it springs also from my skill. It was also one of those things, you know, going back to what you said about, let's see what the universe says about this. It was just something I was always good at. I was good at drawing, I was good at sculpting things, and it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. To go any deeper than that, quite honestly, it would just be a bunch of BS. I was 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old. I really didn't know what was going on in the world. And art seemed like a strong suit for me, so I tried to pursue it. You ultimately chose not to pursue it. And the way I remember it happening was you were cycling all the time, mountain biking all the time, and working at a bike shop and really liked doing that more. So what caused that shift for you? A lot of things, but I'd pretty much say my experience in undergrad. So that was before I knew you. Uh, My experience in undergrad art school was fantastic. I was surrounded by lots of talented students. They were all very supportive. The support network of instructors and advisors was also extremely strong. It was such a great experience. And then I took a year off before I went to grad school and I was working for a sculptor in Chicago. And that's when the rose-colored glasses started maybe uh, getting fogged up or maybe I wanted to start taking those off. I was starting to see the art world 
with perhaps clearer, more accurate picture. And then when I ended up going to grad school where I met you, my experience in school was the exact opposite of what I was used to. I didn't see that same support network. I wasn't surrounded by as much positivity as I was used to. And I also just kind of realized, not that it was bad, I think it was just more real world. I got lucky that first time around. And this also just coincided with me getting very serious about the technical aspects of cycling. I'm gonna pat myself on the back here. I was a really good mechanic. And I started recognizing that about myself and started thinking, you know, maybe this is where I need to go. Maybe this is what the universe is telling me to do. Maybe I should follow this because it feels right and it seems right. Well, that's a good reason to do anything, right? It feels right and it seems right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to yeah, make decisions. Art, yeah, the art thing was just everything about it was just saying, don't do this. Get away. It's not working out. So luckily I listened. <laughs> so I think you have an interesting perspective on this because you have an art background and you have a more mechanical background as well. So mm -hmm. Kristen and I talk a lot about the engineering design cycle. So Kristen, do you want to lay down some engineering design cycle talk? <laughs> sure. So we've come up with a visual representation of problem solving and design that starts with ask and goes into a circle. So ask and define then plan and apply, create and observe, evaluate and improve. And it goes around in a circle and then we can pull out, collaborate and share as the centerpiece as you're doing all of this through collaboration and you're sharing ideas through this whole process. It's just one approach. And the more we started looking at how engineering can approach problem solving, we also take a look at, well, what do we do when we create something or write something? What are the similarities in the process? So when we designed our process, we really were trying to find some vocabulary that could cut across all the different domains. You know, whether you're writing or solving a problem or designing something new, you start with asking questions. And then that kind of leads you on this process or path of creation or discovery or problem solving. Sure. That sounds fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> What has been your experience with processes like that? Are we on base, off base, full of crap? What do you think? <laughs> Kristen was outlining the circle that you keep coming back on. I think you're on base there. But I think what can end up distinguishing the two, the design life cycle, as opposed to a writing process, is who's in charge of what. Very specifically, I think in writing, the writer's the head honcho from start to end the writer's the one in charge, the ultimate decision maker. And I think in a lot of engineering processes, especially from like even smaller size companies up to the more gigantic ones like automotive, there are so many hands in the pie. And it's almost rare to have someone who is involved with a project from start to finish. It moves from one group to the next, to the next, to the next. I certainly can think that that would have a big effect on this idea of an iterative process. You know, I think you're right. And I've never actually stepped back and thought about it that way. Because we're so focused on teaching students the overall process. How do you solve a problem? In the real world, in practice, you would have design engineers handling one aspect of it. You might have the manufacturing engineers or your manufacturing floor, your prototyping unit doing the creating and goes to the test engineers. And across this whole process, it's not one person in charge. Mm -hmm. It's a collaboration across different groups and organizations that own a piece of that process. Right. And what ends up being kind of weird is, so one of the things I used to do was project management. That was maybe the closest you could come to being someone who is from the project from start to finish. 
But what was strange about that is I was mostly just there to make sure other people were doing their jobs. I wasn't guiding any sort of creative or problem-solving aspect. I was just making sure that other people were doing that on a timely basis. The joke in the project management world is it, you have all the responsibility, but none of the authority. And I think that's, again, another big distinguishing mark between that, the god of the project. The writer has all the responsibility and all the authority for this part. Mm -hmm. I think they'll have an editor. I think a strong parallel between uh, writing and the engineering life cycle is that you've got an editor who basically acts as the test engineer. The test engineer is there to say, yes, this works or yes, this doesn't. And that's based on prior knowledge or prior testing or constraints or what have you. And I think while the editor can also be kind of a check on the writer's ego, I very much think that the test engineer is also the same thing. You know, you can design something in a vacuum and it might look awesome and it might match up with all the calculations and numbers in the universe. You still got to test it in the real world and see if it works mm -hmm. or it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how well you designed it, if it works or if it doesn't work. Back to the drawing board, literally. Right. And then you've got your process engineer going, but you can't really build it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a great design. It's beautiful and it might kind of work in theory, but we can't build these. And then in the product management group is like, uh, we can't go back to the drawing board. We <laughs> told the market we're going to have this in 2019. We need to get top <laughs> Marketing's going, we've already sold 500. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it purple, put it in a nice box. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really interesting. What do you think might be a good way to talk to people about the real process then? So if you're trying to give them an idea of what engineering is like in the real world. That's a tough one. I have worked for companies that have engineers that actually design stuff. They are hands-on people. They are actually building prototypes, whereas a lot of engineers that get out into the world actually don't do much design. There's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of patent research, IP, that sort of thing. And the engineers that I've worked with, like I said, very hands-on and they're very much focused on design and mechanisms and the like. At that point, it ends up being very compartmentalized. This idea of a design cycle, like the way I'm familiar with, with the companies I've worked at, it'll start out from product management. They'll come up with the ask. They'll do their market research and they say, okay, there is a vacuum for this product, so we need to make this product. And they'll come up with a proposal and they'll ship it off to what might be called advanced development group. They're the mad scientists that come up with some crazy ideas. You know, it's not so much an iterative process, they'll just go crazy. And then if they find something that looks promising, it'll go past a phase gate. And that's when it kind of starts the real design process. That's when they'll start looking at packaging it in something that is going to be usable for a person rather than simply a mechanism that says, yes, this works. And that can take upwards of a year. And you might have one engineer working on that. You might have half a dozen. There's a lot of back and forth between them and product management. There's a lot of back and forth between them and testing. There's a lot of back and forth between them and industrial design. And industrial design is interesting. They're becoming much more integrated to the engineering outfits that I've worked with, which I think is a good thing. For those of you who don't know, industrial design, they're not engineers. They're not simply people who make things look pretty either. They're often people who are very engaged with ergonomics. So it's easy to make something function well from a mechanical standpoint, but to make that also interact with the human hand, that's where an industrial designer comes in. Ergonomics is a big word that industrial designers work with. And they're also making it look cool. They want to make something that doesn't look like that was designed by an engineer. But more and more, that's getting integrated, which is good. And then from there, 
might get shipped off to a manufacturing engineer, someone who's going to look at it from the standpoint of, can we actually produce this in large amounts for a reasonable cost? And once that gets sorted out, it'll go off to another engineer who is then actually going to make that happen. They're going to set up the machines. They're going to set up the production line. They're going to design the process by which this is manufactured or made. Depending on your company, it can be a year and a half, two years. I've seen some projects kind of linger around for five years or more. I remember one of the companies I left four years ago, I finally saw a product that I was working on like three years after I'd left that company. Like I finally saw it out in the world. That's that, you know, going back to that idea of iteration. A good company is going to have the chutz paw to say, yep, this isn't working and it's going to cost us more money to make this thing work properly. So we'll send it back to that earlier phase gate and just cycle through it again, cycle through it again until we get something that works. As a consumer, someone who uses products, anyone out there, you've probably had something in your hand and you're like, wow, why did they do it like this? <laughs> why does this suck so bad? And at some point, someone made the decision, eh, good enough. They decided that they didn't want to spend the money or time to send it back to the drawing board and whatever bad things that might happen out in the field were worth the cost of getting it through quickly. I think that's interesting, that good enough. I think there's good enough when you're writing is a lot different than good enough when you're an engineer. <laughs> well, and it depends on the industry. When I worked in fasteners, you know, we had some fasteners that were just beauty fasteners and others that it was a life or death kind of thing. And so... yeah. That good enough meant different things on different scales, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. depending on what your end function is. Good enough to not make the people die. Exactly. <laughs> it's different than my version. Like, I think this story can go to an editor now. Yeah. And actually in meetings, we had the tossing out crazy ideas and everyone would eventually come back to, and it was kind of the joke, the, you know, the worst case scenario. And we called it the busload of none scenario, you know, <laughs> you know looking at it at a glance, if you're saying, oh, yeah, we can just, you know, bolt something to the rack on top of the car, something that holds a bike, how hard could that be? It's not that hard, but at the same time, you got to think about how can this fail? And if it does fail, what's the worst case scenario? And if that worst case scenario is likely or not likely, and in fact, this kind of comes down to this thing called the DFMEA, Design Failure Mode Effects Analysis. And it's simply just the engineer sitting down thinking of ways this can fail and what are the effects of that failure and how do we test for that? How do we eliminate this idea that it can fail and cause a busload of nuns to crash and die? So we're always looking to avoid that. Good thing to avoid. But if you're designing shoes, you know, if your <laughs> shoe fails, what's the worst thing that's going to happen there? You're probably not going to kill a busload of nuns. <laughs> I guess it depends on the shoe. Where you're Probably. at when it fails. <laughs> <laughs> what those nuns are doing. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting, though, because in a sense, you're telling yourself a story. You know, you have to think in a creative way about that failure and imagine all those scenarios where a thing could fail. You're being a writer. You're telling yourself a story as you're doing that engineering design process and that failure analysis. So, ha, they're exactly the same. <laughs> no, uh, no, and that's a good point. That's very true. And looking at the engineers that I've worked with in the past that were good at this DFMEA process, they knew how to write an email that I could read and I would go, what do they mean there? I can't read into their tone. Are they trying to read into some tone? I don't know what's going on there. But yeah, like the written word as an engineer, I think is extremely important. Some of the most successful engineers I've worked with have absolutely been able to communicate far better than the rest of them. I worked with one guy, brilliant guy, could diagnose and design stuff amazingly well, but you'd never know that because he couldn't talk about it. He couldn't write about it. He's always like struggling to find the right words. 
I always laughed when I first started as an engineer. They would take me out and I'd do presentations a lot. And I remember presenting to a group of teachers. And afterwards, I had one of them come up to me and she's like, for an engineer, you are a great public speaker. <laughs> you're like, thank you. I, I think, that, okay, thank you. <laughs> Just take it as a compliment. <laughs> Just smile yeah, and nod and walk away. I had a very similar experience to you, Kristen, where I gave a talk on rear suspension design in bicycles and how it related to rear suspension design in motorcycles. And I had more than a few people come up after the talk and talk to me and go, wow, you made it sound so simple. And wow, that was impressive how you were able to just kind of like parse out the information that you needed to know and the stuff that you didn't need to know. And I mean, I was a teacher. I do this stuff every day. And it seemed fairly easy to me, but it, it became quickly very clear to me that is a rare skill in the engineering world. And the same thing happened when I gave a talk on wheel building a year later. A lot of people were like, wow, that was really impressive. My ego was inflated and felt good after that and all that. But exactly what you're saying, the communication, the written word, or even just the spoken word, being able to communicate is huge. And Chris, when did you go to engineering school? It was mid-90s. I just recently dropped out of engineering school for the second time. Just Congratulations. <laughs> I was taking a freshman level engineering course last year at Portland State University. And, you know, I ended up dropping out for a number of reasons, mostly just I'm 41 and I don't have that time. But I was really impressed with what they kept pressing on in that course. It was less about learning how a DC circuit works. It was less about high-level engineering problem solving. And it was more just kind of getting everyone used to this idea that, yes, you're going to have to speak in public. You're going to have to get your thoughts and ideas out in a public way in front of people. And we ended up throughout the semester giving probably four or five different presentations to our classmates. And you could see that just terrified the shit out of most of those students. But I'm glad they started pressing on that because, yeah, it's absolutely important. Oh, yeah. We had nothing like that when I was in school. It was very content focused. But I remember when I started work on my master's degree in instructional design, I'm an instructional tech. I worked with mm -hmm. someone from engineering and you know, we had to design a class for this course. And we're like, we should design. He was also an engineering. We're like, we should design a public speaking class for engineers. I don't know <laughs> if he ever went on to deliver it, but we designed a heck of a course. <laughs> It's totally a collaborative effort. And even just the idea of speaking in public and being able to speak to your neighbor who mm -hmm. you're working with, <laughs> kind of a big deal these days. Yeah. I have a background also as a technical writer at a software company. Sometimes you would get these notes from the software engineers and you just have to go and sit in your office and go, okay, now what does this button do? Okay, now what does it really do? But what does it really, <laughs> really do? And it would take sometimes an hour to get to the bottom of what this was for, why it was needed, and how it would actually help people. And you would have to work through it together. I think there's so many connections and so many ways that all of the disciplines have to work together to get real information across and actually start helping people. But I want to get back to this idea of art. I think your background is interesting just because you've done so many varied things. So are there things that you learned in the process of creating art or deciding not to create art that have helped you in your engineering career? Or also like an extension of that in being a mechanic, a bike mechanic, or the physical act of riding your bike? How does that inform what you do in life or in engineering? So going back to this class that I had recently, this engineering class, I was very much reminded of how 
drawing as a skill, like the skill of drawing, not the creative act of drawing, the skill of being able to look at something in front of you and put it down on paper with pencil or pen in a way that's recognizable to someone else. I'm not talking making it a work of art and perfect, just the idea of getting an idea across not with words, but with a drawing or a picture. And I noticed that students that I was in class with who had basic drawing skills were far better off. They were able to turn things around in their head. They had a visual language. You know, you'll hear that said in art classes all the time. You'll have a visual language or a visual vocabulary of things in which to draw upon. And say you're having a hard time putting it in the words, put it into a picture. And if you can do either one of those, you are just far better served out in the world, regardless if you're an engineer or not, but especially if you're an engineer. And along with this idea that engineers should take a public speaking course, I'm dead serious when I say you should absolutely take a drawing course and get in touch with the creative side of it and the draftsman side of it. Just Mm -hmm. being able to physically look at something and go, all right, I'm going to put this down on paper and I'm going to try and make it look like that. Because this idea that the ability to think in three dimensions, the the idea to be able to look at something inside of your head head because you don't have the physical thing in front of you makes you that much better at design and problem solving. And as far as the bike stuff goes, engineers are perennially interested in the bicycle. And I think it comes down to this idea that it's extremely accessible as a mechanism. There's a lot of different ways to think about mechanisms and design. And one thing that I really like to think about, and I get this from bicycles, I had this go, is that the bicycle is not so much a complex machine as it is a complex collection of simple machines. Uh, you know, if you go to Wikipedia or have done your research on this, there's the seven machines inclines, planes, pulleys, that sort of thing. And if you look at a bicycle, if you look at a car engine, it is simply just a collection of simple machines. And where you find the magic, or at least where I find the magic, in terms of understanding why a design will work or why it won't work or being able to fix something is identifying the simple machine, stripping away the stuff that is not necessary, identify that simple machine. And if you can identify how it interacts with the other simple machines around it, then you've got a clear path to problem solving, whether that's design or repair. I'm currently teaching a graduate level course called visual literacy. And that's kind of a fun course because I've got both educators and there's some artists in there there's some with science background and part of what we really focus on at the beginning are those building blocks of a visual language line texture Mm -hmm. color and then how we use those to communicate through the design principles so it really is showing how you can communicate visually it's a good skill to have and how it's a skill you need to build it's not just something you're born (laughs) with What has cycling taught you about perseverance? That it pays off. Quite honestly, I had a race just this last weekend. I raced cyclocross with a local team. And for those of you who don't know me, I am not fast. I am not fit. I am 205 pounds. Someone described me as a fast donkey once, which I couldn't (laughs) tell if that was a compliment or not. Thanks. Like, you know, just genetically, I'll never be a thoroughbred. I'm just going to be a donkey. And if I train hard, I'm still just going to be a fast donkey. I accept that. And I race not to win. It's this idea to see if I can 
keep going and keep pushing myself. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately. And my motivation right now is I'm, you know, I'm getting a little bit older these days. And we have this idea in our culture that, you know, once you hit 40 or 50, you know, it's all downhill from there over the hill and all that. And I don't like that. I think it's kind of bullshit. I got wonderful inspiration this weekend at a race because I was lining up behind the master's category plus 60. That means guys over 60 years old lined up over 20 of them were sitting there and they're going to race. They were fit enough to race and not just, you know, crotchety old man racing. They were competitive. Some of those guys had better times than the open class, 18 to 35 year olds. And that's kind of amazing to me. I see that as simple perseverance and that perseverance pays off into not being a crotchety old man at 60, still being competitive, still having fun at something I enjoy and love to do. So right now I race not to win, but to simply be able to still race or ride my bike well into the future. I want to be able to have fun at this thing that I love and not be jaded, I guess is the word, or just mad at the world for not being able to enjoy this thing that I love as I get older. And at some point, I know I'll have to give it up. But this idea that you put away these childish things at some point, that's not a good way of looking at stuff. And whether you consider cycling as a distraction, a hobby, a toy or whatever, it's missing the point. Probably the most important thing anyone can get in terms of advice as a kid is be serious about something. You know, this idea of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, maybe that works for some folks, but I think being serious about something, finding something you enjoy and being serious about it, there is an endless amount of pleasure, distraction, learning, and just plain old living that you can find out of that. And that's cycling for me. I found out that I really liked it. I found out that I could get serious about it. I also found out that I can end up making a living at it, which is pretty awesome. Well, I feel like that's where we should stop. I was going <laughs> to ask you about the book, but <laughs> that's kind of like the Craig Manifesto right there. I liked surface tension. And actually, reading the book kind of made me think about all that stuff that I was just saying about being serious about something. The main character, Jake Solly, he's clearly serious about something and he's committing himself to it. And I think that has allowed him to persevere through all these terrible things that ended up happening to him. He had a reason to live in his love of cycling and also the love of his girlfriend, which I think was written very well, actually. I really enjoyed that aspect of the book. This idea that he was a cyclist, it was almost like the, a second character, which I thought was really cool. And the frustration that he ended up feeling when he couldn't ride his bike after his like traumatic injury. I've been there. I had some lower back issues many years ago that prevented me from riding my bike. And that was a very stressful and frustrating time for me. But wanting to get back to that perseverance, that's a good thing. I think it helps you stay hungry and it helps you from being bored or doing boring things. The cycling aspect, I'm glad it ended up being contrasted with his girlfriend's abilities other than that. You know, he had good physical ability on the bike and his girlfriend, the other protagonist, she had good ability with her brain and just mental perseverance. And those two made an excellent team between that mental perseverance and that physical perseverance to, I won't spoil it, but save the day. <laughs> just heard our interview with Craig D'Ambrose, bike engineer. Up next is our interview with Mike Mullen, author of Ashfall and Surface Tension. So I think it was interesting to hear Craig's take on our theory that these iterative processes are the same, whether you're an engineer or a writer. You know, he pushed back on us a little bit, not necessarily because the steps are different, but because 
who takes part in those processes, who owns those processes. So I think that's something we don't talk about a lot when we do engineering challenges. In real world engineering, you might just be one piece of the bigger puzzle. You collaborate with a pretty broad team and you're all working to solve a problem and one might be the group in charge of the plan and the design and then you might have others who are doing the prototyping and the testing and then there's the other part of the team that is looking at the data to decide if the tests worked and if we should go through the process again. Jillian, do writers own that process or is it a team as well? I think writers own a little bit more of the process than, say, the engineer who's making sure that the screw that holds the seat on the bike is working. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so as an author, you'd probably have, you know, you'd have the whole bike in mind and you would be the one that would ride the bike in the end. <laughs> If it was a really successful bike, you'd probably have people sitting on your handlebars <laughs> saying, I'm, I'm steering the bike too. Holding on and yeah. tugging along from behind yeah. going, this is my bike as well. <laughs> no, I think he's right that writers and creative people get to scope out the project a little bit more maybe than one engineer in an entire process. You know, ultimately, there are a lot of people that are responsible for an entire published book. You have your authors, you have your agents who might be developing the story with the authors. You have editors who have a really large say in the outcome of the book. You have other editors like copy editors. You have readers who will give feedback and you even have the bookstores who are giving feedback on everything from what the title should be to what the cover should look like to how it should be placed in the bookstore. So there's in the process of publishing there there are really a lot of hands in the pie as well. The other thing I think is interesting about Craig's story is that he didn't have a straight path to the career that he has. See, you know, he was interested in art and he moved from art to just working at a bike shop and seeing what he liked about that. And that passion for bikes and for cycling led him to do lots of different things in that field. And it's funny that we're talking about weird jobs or, or twisty paths to get where we're going on this, on this crazy little adventure called life, Kristen. I'm going to read Mike's funny bio from his website <laughs> to kind of give you an idea of how he got to where he is. Mike Mullen's first job was scraping the gum off the undersides of desks at his high school. From there, things went steadily downhill. He almost got fired by the owner of a bookstore due to his poor taste in earrings. He worked at a place that showed slides of poopy diapers during lunch. It did cut down on the cafeteria budget. The hazing process at the next company included eating live termites raised by the resident entomologist. So that didn't last long either. For a while, Mike juggled bottles at a wine shop, sometimes to disastrous effect. Oh, and there was that job where swarms of wasps occasionally tried to chase him off ladders. So he's really glad this writing thing seems to be working out. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes me feel lucky about some of the jobs I've had. <laughs> no wasp attacks, I, no eating strange insects. <laughs> I only sometimes get chased off ladders by wasps at Stem Reed, like once a month Tops. Tops. Yeah. Tops. So we're really excited to talk to Mike again about his latest book, Surface Tension, and see what he thinks about bicycles, engineering, and failure in life and in writing. Here's our interview with Mike Mullen. 
Welcome back to the STEM Read Podcast. Mike Mullen, your latest book is Surface Tension, and we've talked a bit about what your idea was behind it before it came out, but could you give people a synopsis of the book? Surface Tension is about Jake, a teenager who is in training to become a bike racer. He's on the cusp of going pro. He trains all the time. And so he's out at 5 a.m. one morning, uh, riding near the Indianapolis International Airport, and he sees a group of men who turn out to be terrorists, and they're causing a plane to crash from the ground. And Jake's the only one who knows how they're doing it, how they're causing plane crashes. And the terrorists notice him watching them and they want him dead. So it takes off from there. Hmm. So it's a young adult thriller. I was really trying to write something that would be different from Ashfall, but give readers the same feeling they got from Ashfall of a really fast-paced novel with some science in it. Well, we love that. Yeah. Yeah. Fast-paced with science. Yep. That's stem read to a T. I know I couldn't put it down. It was just like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? <laughs> Yeah. I don't I don't want to give any spoilers, no. but there was a part that he was being chased by something and I won't even say what. And I was just like, what's going to happen? And Clint was like, you have to go to sleep. And I was like, you go to sleep. I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love books that keep me up that are page turners. So I try to write the kind of thing I like to read. You know, I don't know if I always succeed, but that's what I try to do. You know, it's good if you're like hiding from the rest of your family. You yeah. just sneak off to read just one more chapter. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know I know books really got me when I need to be asleep, I should be asleep, and I'm reading in bed and I find myself falling asleep, but I want to finish the book. So I, I will literally get out of bed and pace back and forth reading. <laughs> and that's the point where my wife wakes up and banishes me to my office. Uh-huh. Yeah. Can you think of any books that did that for you recently? I reread for the fourth or fifth time Hatchet, Gary Paulson's classic book. And yeah, I stayed up for that. And also Guts by Gary Paulson just totally captivated me. It's just the true story of the things that contributed to Hatchet. And there's a crazy story in there about a time he was trying to take a plane with his whole sled dog team in a 90 mile an hour wind and just about died. And you just can't put that down. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep reading. So you mentioned that you wrote this after Ashfall. So how did it feel starting a new world after going through the stories of Ashfall, Ashen Winter, and Sunrise? It was fun to create new characters and spend some time with main characters Larissa and Betsy and Jake and to create some different kinds of characters. I mean, Larissa has some things in common with Darla, but she's a very different type of character than anyone I've ever written before. One in that she's black, another in that her family's very wealthy. And so I was really mining my memories of growing up in an integrated, middle-class neighborhood and of the young men and women who lived, you know, on my block, some of whom were quite a bit wealthier than we were. Well, that was interesting. That's a lot of fun. I enjoyed that part of it. Last time we talked, and you've talked about this before as well, your unpublished novel, mm -hmm. Heart's Blood. Do you want to tell us that and how writing Heart's Blood actually related to how you started to write Surface Tension? Sure. So about 10 years ago, I got fired from the latest in a string of jobs I hated. So it was kind of a relief to get fired. And I turned to my wife and I said, honey, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to sell it. And she said, fine, whatever, just do something. <laughs> So I wrote this uh, young adult novel called Heart's Blood, and I really made it more complicated than I think it needed to be. It was in multiple voices. It was Brett and Lindsay, and it had some of the same themes as surface tension. Lindsay was quite wealthy. Brett was homeless. And anyway, they meet at a homeless shelter where Brett is a resident and Lindsay's visiting on a service project and get mixed up with these old ladies who are murdering alcoholic men and using their blood to cast blood magic spells. Well, that took a turn I wasn't <laughs> expecting. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you can't read it because it was never published, and it was never published because it sucked. Oh, my gosh, it was bad. So uh, when I started writing Ashfall, I thought, okay, I'm going to simplify everything. 
I'm going to try to work within my limits here. And so it just made a very simple, you know, one voice, one main character, one point of view, and a quest story that moves from point A to point B. I mean, there's almost no simpler story you could write. And I think that was a really good decision. I think that's why Ashfall uh, worked, why it got published, where Heart's Blood really didn't and didn't deserve to. I've written several books since then, and coming back to Surface Tension, I thought, well, maybe I can pull this off now. And so I tried to write a book in multiple voices again and failed utterly 16 times. And what you are actually reading is the 17th attempt at writing surface tension. (laughs) And I will leave it to our listeners to judge whether I succeeded on the 17th try or not. So why did it take 17 tries? What changed from try one to try 17? Oh, geez, there were all kinds of things that changed, all kinds of mistakes I made along the path. For example, Betsy was never a point of view character originally, and Larissa was a point of view character for part of it. Oh, and Larissa was Muslim at one point, and her family was, and I found I really couldn't write that authentically. I just could never get deep enough into that headspace to get it right, and so I wasn't willing to do it unless I really felt strongly that I captured it. So Larissa became a non-point of view character, and then people kept saying they wanted to know more about Betsy and didn't believe her. Like, didn't quite believe this vision of a teenaged assassin that was only seen through Jake's eyes. Oh, and she was older then, too. She was 21 or 22. I'm like, fine, all right, you don't believe her, but you want to know more about her? I'll give her her own chapters. And I wrote 20 or 30,000 words in Betsy's voice, and then her role in the book kept growing. I kept adding and adding and adding to it. In the meantime, Larissa's role had kind of shrunk, and at that time also uh, Jake had a sister named Heather. And I got really great advice from my literary agent, from Kate Testerman, who said, you need to cut Heather and give all her roles to Larissa. And that sounds kind of squicky, but it really worked because it gave Larissa a more prominent role in the story, made her more important to the story. And Heather, turns out, wasn't really needed, right? And so that consolidation of characters was a great change. And that was my literary agent's suggestion. And then even very near the end, we made big changes. At one point, we had several Muslims read the book to comment on it, because it you know, deals with anti-Muslim prejudice. And there was a very perceptive comment that, hey, you have this Sons of Pain, this terrorist group, who have terrible viewpoints about Muslims, and you've given them all this real estate in the book to basically explain their prejudice. And there's no counterbalancing view. There's no positive Muslim depiction anywhere in the book. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a, that is a really great point. And so I decided to make one of the FBI agents, one of the good guys, into a Muslim. And that led me into researching Muslim FBI agents. And that's, in fact, why Agent Sufan in my book is named Agent Sufan in homage to Ali Sufan, who was a real Muslim agent in the FBI, a brilliant interrogator. His book was amazing, just fascinating. He was intimately involved in investigating the coal bombing before 9-11. And he maintains that if the CIA hadn't gotten in the way, he might have actually uncovered. He had a lead on one of the 9-11 hijackers and might have actually uncovered that plot. But, you know, we all know how that turned out. But amazing guy. Really interesting. He would go into a cell with a prisoner or someone he was interested with, bring tea and a Koran and argue theology Hmm. until he just got them talking and got them trusting him, spent hours with them. And he said, you know, I can do more with a cup of tea than I can with all the waterboards in the world. Mm -hmm. which I really uh, admired about him. And his whole technique was to build rapport. And also, he is a deeply religious man and really well-read. It just comes clear in reading his memoir in Muslim religious texts. And so he could relate to people from those cultures at a very fundamental level. So anyway, I named my FBI agent Tamer Safan in honor of Ali Safan. 
Yeah, wow, that was a long digression. Sorry about that. No, but it was a fascinating story because you wonder what inspires the different characters in the book, even if they're not the main characters. These these side characters, and they're such an important part of the story. Sure. And you wonder, are they based on people? What inspires you to write them? Yeah, almost everything is based on something in my life, like the horribly racist and Islamophobic uh, terrorist group, the Sons of Pain. I was mining memories of my teenage years there, too. I was in the Boy Scouts from the time I was 13 to 17 or so. And I had a really small scout troop. We didn't have enough people to make a big expedition to Philmont, which is a big Boy Scout camp in New Mexico. And I desperately wanted to go. So I got another troop, a troop from the east side of Indianapolis, that would take me along, just as as an add-on. And the kids who went with me on that Philmont trip were mostly the children of police officers. More than half of them were children of police officers. And it was the most horribly, overtly racist group I have ever spent time with in my life. And it was the first experience I ever had of that kind of overt racism. I mean, you know, there's structural racism and and other kinds, and I'm sure I had been exposed to that, but I never really felt it the way I did around them. And they just expected me to join in. I mean, it's normal. It's natural, right? We're all white, and everybody in that trip was white. And that experience just really stuck with me. And I think I needed to write about it at some point. And I wrote about it by creating a terrorist group based on those kids. And that's where the Sons of Pain came from, I'm pretty sure. Some people have been uncomfortable with Betsy being a sympathetic character. So why yeah. did why did you choose to tell it from her point of view beyond that? She murders that? hundreds of people right in the beginning of the book. I mean, right. I'm not giving much of a spoiler to say she's completely horrible right from the get-go. When Betsy wasn't a big role in the story, people wanted to know more about her. And even though she's not completely sympathetic, I think, I hope she's interesting. And you want to know her and you want to meet her. And I like complex and morally ambiguous characters. I really enjoy writing about them. You know, how can you have in one person someone who will risk her whole operation, her whole goal to save one little girl who's about to get on a doomed plane, yet sees no contradiction between that and causing a plane loaded with businessmen and a congressman to crash and taking 157 lives. That's interesting to me. How can those two things exist in one character? And I think they do exist. People are complicated. I mean, if you talk to people who've done horrible things, people who are in juvie or in prison, they're still the heroes of their own story. You know, they still believe that they're in some way are in the right generally. And so how can I capture that in a story and in a character? And that's what I was trying to do with Betsy. And I'll let your listeners read the book and judge whether I succeeded or not. I hope I did. I know. I found her story fascinating because it was so complex and because it really made you think and question. And it wasn't just straightforward black and white. There was a lot to think about. And so I think it would have been a very different story if you would have just told it from Jake's perspective and not included hers as well. It was very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then part of getting Betsy right, I read tons and tons of memoirs of neo-Nazis who have reformed. There's a whole bunch of those memoirs out, a bunch of them published in Britain. The Nazi movement in Britain is a big problem. Fortunately, there have been a lot of people who have reformed. And what I was reading for is what triggered that. And it's never an argument or a discussion. It's always something personal. It's a fight with a really good friend. They make a new mentor befriends them, and they become really personally close. It's never like you read something. It's, it has to be... It's never a Facebook argument or somebody's comments no. on Facebook that change them? I don't think Facebook has ever changed <laughs> anyone's mind. And in fact, there's some really interesting research that suggests that if you engage with someone's argument on that level, on sort of an intellectual level... 
it actually deepens their commitment to that they become more entrenched. If you talk to a racist and you give them facts, it will actually make them more racist, not less. I think the webcomic The Oatmeal has an entire strip about that yeah. um, cognitive bias. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's fascinating you. the way he describes it and how when you present something that goes against your belief and you have this visceral reaction, how yeah. you dig in. We defend our, yeah. our, our, yeah. our, our beliefs, our, yeah. our cognitive system. The only thing that can really break through that is relationships and a personal touch. We couldn't get marriage equality until lots of gay people took this real really brave step and came out of the closet and we realized that all of us have gay friends. Always have had. We just didn't know it before, right? You look at it's a fascinating chart. People who know a gay person and their support for marriage equality and the two lines just over time just line up perfectly. I mean, they just move in lockstep. So it takes something like that, and that's why Betsy's transformation in the book is all tied up with her relationship with her father. If her father were a decent human being, which obviously he's not, I mean, she'd probably still be a terrorist. Mm -hmm. There's no amount of argumentation or Facebook posts that are going to change someone's mind. And that's true in all the memoirs I read about people in that situation. There is a really cool story, though. There's this one guy, black man, jazz musician who has made a point of going out and trying to befriend as many KKK members as he can. I came across this while I was reading for Surface Tension too. And he has an enormous collection of clan robes. So he goes out and intentionally tries to befriend these guys, and usually they bond over music or cars. And he says after a year or two, generally they will mail him their clan robes because they don't need them anymore. Wow. But it takes somebody like that who's yeah. willing to make a personal connection to do it. You know, ranting on Facebook doesn't matter. So I want to return to the idea of revision. I feel like yeah. that didn't go where I thought it would, but it's very interesting. No, no. It goes where it goes, it goes right? Where it goes. So we've talked about the idea of plotters and pantsers. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that a little bit and talk about as you do your research, as you're doing your drafts, how much wiggle room do you give yourself? Mm -hmm. So I'm a plotter. A plotter is somebody who plans their book out ahead of time. Although with the book we were talking about earlier, Heart's Blood, I pants that. And I think my natural mode probably is pantsing. But some more fascinating research, not on plotting versus pantsing exactly. So a plotter is a person who plans it out, who outlines. A pantser is a person who flies by the seat of her pants, who makes up this plot as she goes along, as she's writing every day. And there's some research on decision-making styles that I think is relevant to this. And it turns out we all make decisions in one of two ways, either intuitively or logically. And I think that kind of maps onto plotter and pantser. Pantser's a very intuitive style. Plotter's a very logical style. And what the psychologists have been researching for many, many years is which of these styles, intuitive or logical, gives you the best, most creative decisions. Can you guess what they found? It doesn't matter. I was going to say. Depends based, on the it, person. It, it, it doesn't depends. matter. It depends, <laughs> depends, right? I mean, the interesting the stuff is always complicated. The answer is always it depends. <laughs> the answer is, you know, we can give you a little instrument, a little survey, and figure out where you are on the nine-point scale from intuitive to logical decision maker. And the answer is, if you are a logical decision maker, you'll get your best, most creative decisions if you switch and you use the intuitive style, the style you're less comfortable with. Hmm. If you're naturally an intuitive decision maker, you'll get your best, most creative decisions if you switch and you use the logical style. How can that be? <laughs> I don't know. All I know is I'm in trouble. It's cool, huh? <laughs> so when I teach writing workshops, what I tell people is if you are normally a pantser, as I am, 
you got to switch. you got to try the style you like less. And that certainly worked for me. After Heart's Blood, which I pantsed, I outlined Ashfall. I mean, I wrote a like, really rough five pages of random notes and then wrote from that. And I think that was part of what helped me break through with Ashfall as well, is forcing myself to use the style I was less comfortable with, even though I didn't know the research. At that time, I'm just like, oh, geez, I wrote this piece of junk pantsing. I better try plotting. I mean, it was two choices. <laughs> <laughs> but I do not stick to the outline religiously. If in the morning I have an idea and I want to go somewhere else, I follow that. And I get some of my very best stuff when I'm off my outline. For example, people sometimes ask me, what's your favorite part of Ashfall? And I always say the same thing, chapters 37 and 38. And those two chapters are the ones that I read the sample from today, where Alex and Darla meet this woman who's uh, got three kids. She's pulling the three kids on the toboggan, and the oldest kid is deathly ill. Alex wants to stop, try to help them. Darla says no. They do stop, and the little girl, spoiler alert, dies anyway, despite their help. I had no idea I was going to write it until the morning I did, and I wrote it because I was visiting my Uncle Chuck, who was uh, 44 and uh, dying of stage 4 colon cancer. And so I flew out with my dad to say goodbye to my Uncle Chuck. And I stayed at his house. He'd come home to die. He had a hospice nurse bring him in his palliative care. And so I stayed at his house, and the way I would work at his house is I'd get up fairly early for me, like, you know, 8.30. And I'd write for a while. And then he would usually sleep late because he was on the good drugs at that point. And so he would wake up at 10.30 or 11. And then I would quit writing and spend the rest of the day with or as much time as they wanted to with him and his family. You know, the hard thing about being there was not seeing my Uncle Chuck die. It was seeing you know, this wife younger than him and three kids, and they are just trying to shower love on him. It was just obvious they were deeply grieving inside. And so I wrote chapters 37 and 38 of Ashfall while I was there. And I knew I had something good when I was revising the book. One of the great revision techniques you can use is ask somebody to read your book out loud to you. And my wife's a teacher, so I bribed her. I told her I would drive her to an education conference in Pittsburgh <laughs> if she would read Ashfall out loud on the way. It's like 9 in the morning. We're driving east on 70 through Ohio. The sun's coming in through the front windshield. She's in the passenger seat reading. I'm driving. She gets to chapter 37 and then 38, and I hear this little hitch in her voice. And I look over at her, and her cheeks are just shining in the morning sun, tears streaming down her face. And I thought, yes, I nailed it. Best chapter ever. I am a great writer and a terrible husband. <laughs> It's my long, stupid story about why you should not slavishly follow your outline, even if you are a plotter. Those chapters are very powerful. I include them in the Ashfall field trip, and then I leave the room every time that you read I them. I noticed you <laughs> hiding behind the screen. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was doing. Like back in the hallway, yeah. the door was closed. I do. I can't. I can't. I just can't. I was telling Hannah that the part of the way I got that, you know, I always figure if, if you're not crying while you're writing something like that, then your audience isn't going to feel it either. Mm -hmm. And so part of the way I did that is I named the little girl Katie after my niece, my sister's <laughs> daughter. And my sister was really mad, quite angry about that. But, but it worked, I think. Like it's part of the method. How old is Katie now? Katie is in eighth grade now. Did so you, and she, she knows was, this she about was her? She five or six. Uh, I think, I don't know. My sister might not have told her. I, I've never really had occasion to tell her explicitly yeah. that. Your uncle killed you in his book. Yeah. Oh, great. Mm. 
<laughs> I like having those areas where you can go back and you can fill in holes. So talk about that. Talk about the process. How do you see revision? Do you see the revision process as a creative process or is it more something that's like grinding away at something? So I try to, when I'm actually drafting, I try to keep myself as loose and creative as I possibly can be to keep the whole creative side of my mind yeah, I know it's not a side. It's actually distributed over both hemispheres. But to keep that part of my mind engaged. And then when I start revising, I switch. And I sort of intentionally engage the analytical parts of my mind. To the extent that every book I've written so far, I have somewhere between the first and third draft, I build a spreadsheet that lists every single chapter, how long the chapter is, short summary of what's going on, what characters are there for like Sunrise where it little really mattered, what, how much money they had in terms of seeds and trade goods, uh, where I was trying to keep track of that, how the chapter ends, whether it's a cliffhanger or a fermata. I always try to end my chapters either with an emotional summation of what's happened, which I call a fermata. Actually, then it's borrowed from an editor, uh, Cheryl Klein. I didn't come up with it. Or a cliffhanger. And so I keep track of that. I keep track of how long the chapter is. So I'm looking, and oh, and also whether it's an action chapter or a quieter chapter. So I'm looking for like a pattern of alternating action and quiet chapters. Like if I've, if I've got three or four quiet chapters in a row, that's fine. But if there are 10, no, that has to be changed. I'm looking for a pattern of cliffhangers and fermatas. I can have a couple cliffhangers in a row, but if there are three or four, you get tired as a reader. It's too, too, too much. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, I've strung together like five or six cliffhanger chapters in a row, and so I need to break that up, and I need to have a quieter one with a Vermont in it in the middle somewhere. And so I look at all that stuff as deliberately as I can, and at that point, it's very much an analytical process. It's not so creative anymore. It's been interesting. As you've been talking about your revision process, I can't help but start to draw parallels to the problem-solving process in engineering design. Jillian and I talk a lot about the overlapping and the connections between these mm -hmm. processes. And as you're talking about it, it's made even more clearer in my head how similar those processes are. Yeah, you were talking about your four steps of engineering design, and they'd line up exactly with novel writing, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget, what were they? Ask, plan, create, and evaluate. So ask is like coming up with the idea. Plan is people either plan their novels as a pantser or a plotter, Pantsers spend a lot of time on character and figuring out their characters before they write. Plotters, you know, focus on the plot, obviously. Or sometimes we do character, too. I mean, you know, it, it can overlap, and people use a very often a combination of both techniques. But that's like that planning stage. And then you know, create is like the drafting stage. Mm -hmm. And then the iteration is the revision. And then most novelists will crank through those last two points over and over and over and over mm -hmm. again. In the case of surface tension, through 17 major redrafts, which is more than I've ever done before. I spent four years on surface tension. And I think that's interesting, too. I think it is this cycle, but it kind of spins off itself, too. Mm -hmm. So you think of it as the who, what, when, where, why becomes yeah. your questioning. You know, first you're, you know, you're setting the stage and figuring mm -hmm. out things and then drafting and, you know, plotting and things like that. Then, you know, evaluate showing it to other people. Like mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that when we evaluate what happens, how do you evaluate it? How do you test writing mm -hmm. to see if it's good? Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about having your wife read it out loud yeah. to you. I do that. I make my husband read my <laughs> stuff out loud to me. Excellent. What are some of your other techniques for that evaluation process? And I work with a critique group. I always tell uh, students when I'm talking about it, show your work to people who hate you. 
Because they're the ones who give you tough, honest criticism. They'll toughen you up because you're going to get rejected a lot. You know, when you actually, as you well know, start submitting. We all know. I mean, that happens to everybody. The other thing I find really helpful through any of the processes, the writing or the revision, is just uh, take a break every now and then and go for a walk or a bike ride. There's something magical about walking, about physical activity. And I've heard lots of other writers say that. I think of Gay Polisner, a brilliant writer, way better writer than I am, who writes young adult novels. And when she gets stuck or she just, you know, she takes breaks and she goes swimming in the ocean, Long Island. She'll swim for miles. I hop on my bicycle or go for a walk. Um, other people, Cody Keplinger says she dances. Hmm. So. I told you we always need random dancing we breaks need, in yeah. the office. But I think there's research on that, too, and you're starting to see more of that come into schools about the connection between physical activity and students' ability to think and problem solve. And how do you keep the kids more active or you know taking those brain breaks? Yeah. We learned that the hard way the first time we worked with a group of second graders. <laughs> and we were doing one of these STEM read field trips, and we had them, you know, we plan for hours and you could see them just kind of wilting, wilting. <laughs> and the people who were with us who had asked us to come to the school are like, you need a brain break. We need to wiggle a bit. And they came up with this elaborate kind of call and response where they would call out something and all the kids would drop to the floor and be jellyfish. And yeah. it was amazing. And it was incredible to see the difference that made in the kids and their focus and their ability to think so it was yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, it works. <laughs> and it's also that that shower principle, you know, like go take a shower, do mm -hmm. something else, mm -hmm. and then your ideas will start coming again. Yeah. We, Clint and I always say that our house is the cleanest when we need to revise uh -huh. because we put it off mm -hmm. as long as possible while we try to do other stuff. And then you'll be sweeping or doing the dishes and you're like, wait, no, I've got it. I'm back in. Yeah, I read somewhere that people take in information best in like about seven minute chunks. Mm -hmm. So like in that talk, my best talk, my how taekwondo is like writing talk. I try to change subjects or do something a little different and just kind of give it in seven minute chunks. I also read up somewhere about a school that was testing that. What you were saying, they broke recess up and they do three 15 minute recesses in oh. a day. So they have morning mm -hmm. recess, lunch recess, and afternoon recess. Interesting. Which I think there could be something to that. Yeah, and you see more schools, especially as the kids get older, where you don't have recess. Yeah. And so it's putting that recess back in, giving those kids the opportunity to just run around and chill. And what's happening then, your subconscious is organizing all that information in the background and figuring out what to forget. And that really matters. Mm -hmm. I mean, our brain is an incredible forgetting mechanism, right? You're going to forget almost everything you see today because if you didn't, you'd get overloaded. And you have to give your brain time to do that. And so that's why sleep's so important, too. I always tell writers, you have to sleep if you're going to write. In fact, uh, most people need eight hours of sleep a day. But why not overachieve? Why not go for nine? <laughs> We're on minute 34 talking about seven-minute chunks of information. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And then break it up. You know, pause it if you need to. Random go, dance party? Go sure. run around. Have a dance party. Yeah, let's. Yeah, every seven minutes we want you to put in dance break and then play, <laughs> some, like, <laughs> play some like Bollywood music. <laughs> Change it up every time. Different styles. So yeah, your brain's yeah. got to keep. There you go. I think that Muscle works. confusion. And... I don't. Uh, lots of writers listen to music as they draft. I don't do that. I prefer, you know, background noise or silence. But while I'm editing, I created this Pandora station that's seated with uh, Metallica, Big Smith. Big Smith is bluegrass and a time for three which is classical so it like changes it's a weird jarring Whoa. music changes <laughs> and, I, and i like all three styles of music but i don't use
usually listen to them, you know, in, in sequence like that. But I think the changes in the music really kind of shock me out of my ruts and get me focused again. So I don't know. There might be something to that. Yeah. Are you a strunk and white guy? Are you an yeah, elements yeah. of style no, I, guy? I love the elements of style. I just like his emphasis on parsimony and word choice and eliminating unneeded words. Mm-hmm, I the, think is a really big deal. And I try to make my writing live up to that. And a lot of that happens in editing, too. Mm-hmm. Another tip I have, put your book in Wordle. Do you guys do Wordle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I put Ashfall That's in Wordle. And Darla, of course, was the biggest word because Alex is always thinking about and talking about Darla. And so I looked at that and said, yeah, that's as it should be. But then, like, the second biggest word was just. And just is a terrible word. It means nothing or it means something other than what you were trying to convey. I mean, it just, just. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Just and really? (laughs) Yeah, really is bad, too. But the one I tend to overuse is just. For whatever reason, I don't use really all that much. Very often, you really mean to say only, mm-hmm. and so you should say only, <laughs> or you can eliminate it completely. I had more than 600 uses of the word just in Ashfall, and if you read it now, there are four, I believe, hmm. and most of them are in dialogue. Yeah. We work with a lot of teachers who love word clouds, and mm-hmm. so using things like Wordle or there's several different ones. And I don't think I've ever heard of anyone saying using it as a revision tool. Yeah. So that's a really interesting way to look at word choice. Sure. It's a histogram of your words. Yeah. So, word choice uh, and, and in fact, frequency. Wordle, yeah. There's a background page you can get that will actually list the frequency, mm-hmm. how many times you used every word. And so you can also look at it in a table format. And it's very useful. Very is another word you should <laughs> get rid of. Yeah, it's very, very useful right, right. For, for the varies. Yeah. And I, I think I really like that omit unnecessary words passage. I know mm-hmm. my interns will say that I bring that up and I bring that up in creative writing camps. And in that passage, they talk about a passage having no unnecessary words, just like a machine having no unnecessary parts. So mm, it's yeah. strunk and white beat us to this idea of Darn it. <laughs> iterative processes <laughs> and creativity. Well, and we've discovered that in manufacturing, it's so important to minimize the number of parts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have two cars and one of them takes 5,000 parts and one of them can be made in 2,000 parts, the 2,000-part car is going to be easier and cheaper to make. It's going to break down less. There's all these huge advantages. You have that many fewer things to track. And so I think it is actually very similar to writing, yeah. that there is value in parsimony. We hmm. talk about that when we're doing the engineering design challenges with teachers and with students, you know, usually it's just, can you come up with something to solve the problem? But then can you come up with the simplest, most refined solution Mm -hmm. and, you know, do the cost analysis or do the analysis? Where's your fail point? Because Mm -hmm. you've got a complex system here. So how can you simplify that to take out those fail points and increase the reliability of of your solution? And the simple solution always just seems more elegant, doesn't it? I mean, you you see it and you think, oh, that's beautiful there's a beauty in simplicity mm-hmm. and it's there's a satisfying nature of it too when i find that i can cut out a whole chapter it was sad for me. when <laughs> yeah, i it's... wrote my dissertation mm-hmm. you know it was 350 pages mm-hmm. and i remember going through my first dissertation defense your pre-defense and the first thing they said to me is well this chapter is unnecessary and i'm like that chapter this it's is my two, baby. this is two years of my life worth of research and you're telling me this chapter is not necessary yeah i look at it now i take it out i'm like yeah that wasn't needed at all 
Well, thinking of this idea of fine tuning, so, Mm -hmm. you know, you said that you removed entire characters and Mm -hmm. you moved a lot of chapters around. So how did that manifest itself? How did you do it? Where did you move things and why did you move them? Yeah, so maybe the best example is in the opening chapters. Chapter 5 was the first chapter I wrote in the original opening chapter where Jake is just waking up in the hospital, has had this terrible head injury and can't remember anything. And then, you know, I'm, I'm... going through this iterative process, getting feedback, and people are saying, we don't really know enough about Jake. We don't care about him yet, so that the fact that he's had this injury doesn't affect us in the way it should. So you really need to introduce the character first. So I tried that, and I wrote chapter two, and then I moved a couple to make it connect. I moved a couple chapters that were in memories from the middle of the book to the front of the book, and then strung all that back together. And then uh, I got the complaint, even though the chapter two introduces Jake and you get lots of his story and lots of characterization there, there's not a whole lot of action. And, you know, hey, this isn't the kind of exciting start we expect out of a Mike Mullen book. (laughs) So I go, yeah, okay, I'll write the exciting start you expect. And so then I wrote chapter one, in fact, very near the end of the whole process. So you constantly have to be thinking about, you know, what are you trying to achieve here and what does it best? And balancing the needs of character and plot. And for me, I think about my reader. Will my reader stay engaged? Is this something I would love to read? Would I put it down? And so I'm constantly asking those questions. Now, I talk to some writers who say, no, no, no. Just write it for yourself and focus on that. But I'm not one of those. I really do think about my readers and try to write something I hope will be satisfying to them. I guess writing for yourself is sort of good advice in that you are always trying to write the book you want to read, or at least you probably should be. And I do that, I guess, so... But the thrill is having other people read yeah. it and tell you that you're great, yeah, right? Yeah, Tell you oh, sure. how awesome it is. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, no. And without readers, without people buying the books, I wouldn't get to keep doing this. I mean, Margaret would put her foot down at some point. <laughs> so, yes, thank you very much to everyone who's buying the books. I do not want to have to do a real job again. <laughs> So today you said that when you were writing Ashfall, you got about two-thirds of the way through before mm-hmm. you realized that this was a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then you stopped what you were doing and started plotting out the other books. Yeah. What's happening with surface tension? Can we expect that maybe you did that? No, I don't have a plot for a companion book. At the end of Surface Tension, I wrapped up all of the Jake storylines, at least to my satisfaction. And then I left a hook open connected with Betsy's storyline. And so I have some ideas, four or five pages of notes about a companion book that would be completely in Betsy's voice, where Betsy and Tapper are sort of the most important characters. And I may write that at some point, but I need to finish Ashfall 4 first. I got distracted by this middle grade survival story I'm writing right now, but I hope to wrap that up here pretty soon and get back to Ashfall 4 because I've got to finish that book before my fans lynch me. (laughs) So is this middle grade survival story the reason that you had to read Hatchet? Yeah, no, I've read Hatchet and Guts and Brian's Winter and Peak by Rowan Smith, and I'm reading Nancy Farmer's uh, survival story and My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craig George. Uh, so many mountains. I was going to say, lots of mountains. Man, don't yeah. go into the mountains, middle graders. You're not, yeah. It's not going to go well. happen in the yeah. mountains. Don't no, go no with no your parents. in the book I'm reading. <laughs> Waterfalls, I have, though. I have one burning question. Yeah. You said that none of us will ever read Heart's Blood. Yeah. 
do you ever feel like you want to go back to that story and give it another try and do it better? Yeah, I have. After Ashen, I finished Ashen Winter, I went back to it and I spent about a month rewriting it. And then I gave it to some people to read and they said, no, no it still sucks. <laughs> so I think if I go back to it now, what I will do is start with a blank page and just rewrite it completely from scratch because I'm a much better writer, well, I think, I hope, than I was 10 years ago. So I think I could do a better job if I didn't have the burden of the existing text. And I may try that at some point. It depends. I mean, I would have to be confident that that's the most interesting project I have on my plate, that, you know, that I could do that for a year and, you know, really be entertained and motivated by it. You know, engineering, Kristen always talks about as being a process of making things better and better. So how do you, as a final thought, how do you make yourself better and better as a writer? Mostly read. I mean, you just got to read a lot and keep reading and read out of my comfort zone. When I did this trip to the Boundary Waters, I maybe mentioned earlier this year, I took a book of poetry because I read so little poetry. Okay, so I'm going to read something different. And the wonderful thing about reading poetry is you read it over and over and over again. There's something new every time. I read this book over and over over the eight days. I was without access to anything, completely cut off from the world, which was wonderful. Oh, my gosh, I loved it. So, yeah, reading is absolutely the most important thing. And then, you know, I still go to conferences. I still listen to other writers. I stalk other writers. I listen to them speak about writing. I take writing courses still. Even though I teach writing courses now, you can always learn. And, you know, when I go into those things, when I'm going to, like, a Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators event, I go into those things with the attitude of every session I'm going to try to take one thing away. And it's a success if I get one idea I can use. So, you know, if I spend an hour in a room listening to somebody talk about writing and I come out with one idea, then that's a win. Still, today, I mean, I think I'm fairly knowledgeable and a fairly good writer, but still I can listen to just about anyone and come away with one idea that will improve my own writing. So it's sort of an iterative process. It's basically self-engineering, I guess. We also refer to it as the continuous improvement process. Of course, yeah. You need continuous improvement as a writer. So reading, writing, and training that you get from your community and your peers and your mentors and teachers. You just heard our interview with Mike Mullen, author of the Ashfall series and Surface Tension. So we work with Mike a lot, and he's always a blast. I love listening to his stories about how he's failed or how he wasn't afraid to try something that he wasn't sure would be successful and how he learned from it and kept moving forward. I think that was a really interesting talk about revision. And for me, revision is always the hardest part of writing. Some writers, you know, they write and they're like, oh, I hate everything I write and I just have to tear it apart as soon as I get it on the page. And I'm the opposite. I'm like, everything I write is amazing. And I show it to people. I show it to my husband. I'm like, read this. Aren't I amazing? We had uh, Daniel H. Wilson here a few years ago. And he said that when he was writing, he'd make his wife read it or make other people read it. And he'd say, what was your favorite part? (laughs) And I, I, I definitely fall into that camp. It's been really difficult for me to embrace the revision process and to see the places where you can still be creative in the revision process and and how you can find new things and, and improve and make the characters better and make the story tighter and tighter and tighter. That's a good lesson for a lot of students who want their first try to be perfect. There's that fear that if it's not perfect the first time, I've failed or I'm not even going to start it. 
unless I know it can be perfect. So knowing that there's revision built into the process, whether, again, it's writing or solving a problem or designing, revision allows you to get over that fear of it having to be perfect. When we think about revision and we think about iterative processes, we can also think about how that applies to ourselves. I think I heard a statistic one time that said students today or our, our young people today will have like 18 different careers in their lifetimes, not just jobs, but careers. Their whole life is an iterative process of trying out different jobs, trying on different career paths, and seeing what fits and what they learn from one that they can take to the other. The path doesn't end. How many jobs, how many careers have you had in your lifetime, Jillian? <laughs> oh, gosh. Jobs is a lot. <laughs> careers. How about careers? Uh... Probably like four at least. Yeah, I think I'm about there too when I think about switching careers. And some of them overlap and they were all kind of leading toward the same place. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Mine led to weird places then back to one place, I guess. I guess that meandering path is yeah. a good description. <laughs> right. Well, and sometimes you get to a place and you're like, how did I get here? What is happening? This is not where I want to be. Or you get in and you're like, what is this beautiful utopia I just stumbled into? Right. The, yeah, the, <laughs> how did I get here? This is where I want to be. This is amazing. I'm feeling like I'm in a pretty amazing place right now. As do I. Not just here in the studio with you, but <laughs> helping people learn and get excited about books and also writing books. It's pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, pretty good. I, I feel I've failed enough to get me into a good place right now yes <laughs> I've, I've failed right into the right spot that's all the failing you're going to get for us on the stem read podcast today thanks so much to our guests craig d'ambrose and mike mullen you can find more information on their work and some of the things we've discussed today in our show notes if you've got questions or comments tweet us at niu steam hashtag stem read if you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.